Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. This episode of The Vault is from November 17, 2012, when the Institute held a day-long symposium in which playwrights, poets, scientists, philosophers, artists, and activists discussed the phenomenon of solitary confinement. Titled, Should You Ever Happen to Find Yourself in Solitary, Wry Fancies and Stark Realities, the event was the brainchild of Lawrence Weschler, the Institute's director. In this final episode, Lawrence Weschler talks about what society should do about solitary confinement with Scarlett Kim, Juan Mendez, Robert King, and members of the audience. Who is the interlocutor? We've got a bunch of people here who should be writing letters to somebody. Who do we write letters to? And you mentioned that it's Governor Cuomo and Commissioner Fisher. What pressure can we and can we tell our friends to to put on people and and who specifically could do something tomorrow morning? Well, our hope is that the executive branch of the state government will undertake and initiate reform on its own. And of course, having some kind of political support for that reform is important. So members of the public writing letters to the governor and to the commissioner and explaining that they support an independent review, that they encourage reforms to the system is obviously helpful. An independent review beyond what's going on already right now? Uh, well, the commissioner is currently undertaking an internal review, but it's, it's really unclear. I mean, it's not a public review. It would be great to be able to hold him accountable to whatever reforms oh. he does suggest. Um, and also, if they're inadequate, to encourage him to push further. Uh, just a curiosity, did the earlier Governor Cuomo, was he part of what got this going? And the young Governor Cuomo has to dismantle stuff? Yeah. It's actually uh, Governor Pataki that oversaw a lot of the expansion of the use of extreme isolation mm-hmm. in New York. Huh. Let, let me ask a question of you, Juan. The same question, uh, is President Obama the interlocutor here? Well, for the United Nations, obviously, yes. We have to communicate formally through the State Department and more specifically through the UN mission in Geneva. That complicates matters when, when the, the matter is more, you know, a state matter, for example, because then I cannot communicate directly with the New York State. But obviously there are various ways in which more informally we, uh, we make our views known. For example, I have filed a Mika Scurie brief uh, with the Supreme Court and with courts in other countries and even international courts like the European Court of Human Rights. And I talk to the press as often as I am the subject of press uh, inquiries, including in cases. Beyond that, you know, uh, I think the special rapporteurship should be considered a sort of um, a sounding board or a forum for advocacy. The creativity uh, of advocates, um, you know, should know no limits in that sense. And uh, yes, I communicate mostly with each central government, in this case with the federal government, but it's uh, the United States government that is responsible to the rest of the world about whether there's been or not uh, violations of the prohibition on torture or cruel human undergrading treatment. If you use the example of the civil rights movement in the 1960s, it was largely American embarrassment at the federal level over civil rights in the United States vis-a-vis the Cold War, the fight for the mines of Africa and so forth, that was hugely important. Could a similar kind of shaming thing be brought to bear on the United States today? Could this be taken out of state hands and made in the same way that civil rights was taken out of state hands? It's not going to be taken out of federal hands and put into the international community's hands. Let's uh, be realistic on that. Uh, Unfortunately, we can just contribute some 
views from the rest of the world, and it, it does, I think, contribute to shaming the fact that the company that the United States keeps uh, with respect to treatment of prisoners is not very good company in the outside world. Iran, for example, uh, Venezuela on, on treatment of prisoners, China. There are many worse things that happen around the world. I'm not, uh, and it's difficult to compare one with the other. But in terms of numbers, certainly, there may not be clear statistics, but just impressionistically, the number of cases that come to my attention as a special rapporteur and the estimates of how many people are at any given date in isolation in the United States is really staggering. In that sense, those uh, comparisons should probably help in campaigns and advocacy strategies. I guess the question I'm trying to ask, now I'm asking you not as the UN rapporteur, but as a professor at American University in, in Washington, does this battle have to be done state by state or can it be done at the federal level? And at the federal level, does that have to be done by lawyers going to the Supreme Court or can it be done legislatively at the federal level? Well, one of the sad things that I've learned uh, in, in looking at this is that especially because many, many states and even federal uh, prison authorities use isolation as a form of prison management, quote-unquote, and not as disciplinary, that federal courts particularly have, to a large extent, abdicated their responsibility and given a very, very wide discretion to the administrative authority, not even looking as to whether any due process rule has been violated. That's, you know, kind of a sad commentary because, of course, judicial review of administrative decisions, not only prisons, but of everything, has been a hallmark of the way the United States has dealt with civil rights and and human rights and has been imitated by many countries around the world. So the fact that the United States courts are going backwards in that sense is, of course, a, a sad commentary, as I said. On the other hand, I think the fact that the United States has a very strong civil society and very savvy and very sophisticated legal and other organizations that can and do from time to time put barriers on what the prison authorities can do is a really good example and, and, and a source of uh, hope that uh, things can be improved. Can I um, maybe sure. just add a point about the, the federalism angle, which is that I think it's interesting because compared to the civil rights example, I think that the states offer hope in terms of solitary confinement. It's really the states that are leading the reform, whereas the federal government, in a lot of ways, seems to be expanding its use of isolation. I believe the federal government just bought another facility in the Midwest that it intends to convert into a second ADX. ADX Florence is a, is a solitary confinement facility, a federal facility in Colorado. The other thing that I think is interesting is that when it comes to criminal justice, the vast majority of prisoners are held at the state level, not through the federal government. And so from a realistic point of view, in order for the United States to comply with international human rights norms, the states will have to comply. Unless the Supreme Court reinterprets the Constitution to prohibit solitary confinement, it's really going to be left up to the states to decide what they're going to do with the vast majority of prisoners under their custody. And I think that we shouldn't think of that necessarily as a bad thing because it creates 50 different entry points for the incorporation of certain types of norms. And there are some states that might actually be more amenable than even the federal government. It it struck me, one thing that all of us who are going to go home and write letters to Governor Cuomo and Fisher can write is, can we be maybe almost as good as Mississippi? (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a very powerful argument. I just wanted to to add to what you have both said and to say what, what we really need to make 
to pressure for legal reform and political change is a social movement that starts with writing letters, but also takes other forms like being involved with networks of activists who are pressuring on all kinds of different levels, making the connections between mass incarceration and solitary confinement and stop and frisk policies. One of the things that I've learned from Russell Maroon Schultz and his writing from his own solitary confinement cell, his inspiration is fugitive slave communities and the sorts of decentralized social and political organizations, interracial support of basically poor people who have checked out of capitalist, colonialist society in order to create alternative forms of social relations and to resist the sort of system that we have. Our prison system is a continuation of colonization, and it's a, it's a way of continuing exactly that kind of deprivation of civil rights that the civil rights movement as a social movement was moving against. And so I think legal and political reforms are most effective when they rise up from this broader social base. So just, I think it's been a long day. We'll probably close a second. Is there one or two questions from the audience? Thank you. Um, I represent the Black Panther Commemoration Committee, New York City. And as you know, uh, I hear you speaking about solitary confinement. Majority in New York State here, you have political prisoners that the United States do not recognize, as you know that. Panthers that got caught up in Corrientel Pro, Russell Schultz being one of them, and we have others. And as you say that you're writing, we ask people to write to political prisoners because one of the things do, their information coming out will help you to galvanize what you're talking about now. So and my how do we thing get, is how do we to, get addresses oh, for people? Well, yes, you can go to Jericho Movement, the Jericho Movement. They have a law in Jericho organization, and you go on their line, and they have listings of all the political prisoners. But keep in mind, they move them. That's the catch in this whole phase. They move these political prisoners around, and as they move them, this causes them to pay. These prisoners have to pay to be moved. What do you I don't mean? know if you guys know that or not. How do you mean? They pay. They have to pay. When they be moved, that pay has to come out their commissary to be moved. In other words, you pay to be in prison today. You have to understand that. I don't know if people understood that or not. You pay to be in Matter of fact, you pay to be on parole. And post-release. And post-release. The prisoners have to pay. So it's a catch 2020 in this whole situation, if you understand what I'm saying, it's almost like the time of um, sharecroppers. So well, it's exactly You're like, the time, of, it's exactly like the time of sharecroppers. Yeah. I'm Teresa Schultz. I'm the daughter of Russell Schultz, who's been mentioned here. Bigger than that is that we need to acknowledge that every last one of us here are taxpayers. Some of us are who may be employed. We're footing that bill also. So every day that a prisoner is being tortured, presently, right now, being tortured, you are footing that bill as a taxpayer. So when these elections come up, and I'm not talking about the hope and the change that was back last week sometime, we're talking about that you're footing a bill and they use crime, war on drugs, every time this country feel like they want to eliminate people or poor folks or just to lock up folks. 
and the crime rate had decreased, but yet they keep hyping it up, especially at elections. Now, when he talked about the political prisoners, yes, before this thing became fashionable to be called solitary units, solitary confinement, it was just a hole. And you were thrown in there, and it was a dark place. And there were limits, 90 days. But they made it real popular around people who stood up and fought against the unjust, the issues that were going on behind prison doors. And those are some of the political prisoners that he's talking about. Anyone that stands up and, and speak out against injustice, those are the ones, like my dad approaching 70 years old, in solitary, 30 years, doesn't even know what he looks like. He doesn't have a mirror. And he was uh, very disappointed with me recently when I told him, I said, oh, you got some gray. And he said, what? You didn't tell me he was so upset that I hadn't told him. Of course, I had seen it prior to that visit, but I thought he knew. And in 30 years, I didn't know that he wasn't able to see himself in the mirror. So that's inhumane in itself. If, if you can't even detect or know what you look like anymore in 30 years. So we as taxpayers, I just want to bottom line that. We're helping to foot this type of bill. And don't think, the question wasn't really addressed earlier, what do we do with those people that should be in solitary? Well, first of all, for those vicious crimes, those folks probably need to be treated and medicated. There are tons of uh, mentally ill folks in solitary that most of them do kill themselves. And you, we have a report on the Human Rights Coalition um, website that stated guard teased a mentally ill guy in South and kept telling him, kill yourself, just go ahead. He said, but I do want to kill myself. He said, go ahead, kill yourself, get it over with. And he ended up killing himself about three months ago. Thank you. Robert has something else to say. Briefly, I just wanted to say briefly, go back to one uh, pivot on, off of one thing that was said. Human rights, I think what we need to do, if we really want to get federal, like get it out the state, there is a way it can be done. Malcolm showed us this a long, long, long time ago. We raise it to the level of human rights. Solitary confinement is a violation of human rights. The way it's constructed, we raise it to the level of a violation of human rights, and then we can go, we can uh, look at the way it is now, President Obama, or, or whoever the president is, they don't interfere with state. That is not, they could pardon the turkey at, at Christmas time. <laughs> but it is not within it is not within the realm to pardon a state prisoner. But if we raise it to the level of a human rights violation, solitary confinement, then he has to he, he has to, uh, his office, his administration, somebody in his administration have to adhere and answer to this. Just wanted to be briefly talk about the denial of parole, how it's just constantly and constantly being denied to prisoners for no ungodly reason. And I think we also need to address the issue of parole and the parole board and how that is all established and how we can redetermine and relook at those people who haven't committed any problems and then come up for parole and are still denied. I think actually I'm going to give you the last word. First of all, I would like to uh, congratulate and thank everyone for coming out. Everybody who made an effort to stand up against Crimes Against Humanity, that's why I look at it as, because that's exactly what it is. I encourage that 
if you are searching for means to help or play a part in the role, all of these websites, especially New York City uh, Liberties Union, has um, links to other sites that affects everywhere in New York and every other place in the world. I had a question. Actually, I don't want to make you mad because I need more booklets from you. <laughs> I know your rights tour. I'm actually going through every neighborhood trying to distribute rights because education is the key. So people who are, if this is a shock to you that these things go on, imagine to people who don't know and they're being violated. So education is the key, number one. Um, I just say that. So I'm going through every housing community in New York giving out pamphlets, Know Your Rights booklets. Some of them I get from different places, but they get tired of me coming back and forth. I have a question for you as far as do we have an educated plan as far as the process that deals with the positive reintegration of inmates back into society. And I'm not talking about, okay, I was in Auburn for three years. I was in Auburn census. Auburn is getting money for the inmates that are being in there because there's over 3,000 inmates that go through transit. So if you're there from Thursday and they don't do transit on Monday and you're there till Wednesday, you're on account. And being on account means that county gets money for you being there in that jail because it's a transit jail. So there's a lot of loopholes in prison that people don't know about. I, I could be here all night telling you about them. But they get funding for that town. So that town gets a recreation center because their census is an extra four or 5,000 inmates and actually an extra five or 10,000 more inmates because it's a transit jail that holds for more than three days. If you hold for more than three days, you're in account. So it's a lot of loopholes there. But when they leave there, they're returned back to their county of conviction, which might be where they actually got locked up at in the same spot. So these things are no positive reintegration back into society. And what efforts are we going to make for the future? Or do you have planned to at least exercise these rights? So I'll, I'll speak to that generally, although I don't, I don't have a concrete plan as to that. But I, when I mentioned at the end of my talk that solitary confinement crystallizes a lot of issues that afflict other parts of uh, criminal just, the criminal justice system, I think one area where that's, where that's really obvious is the lack of emphasis on rehabilitation. And so when we see, you know, we see men in solitary confinement, they're not receiving any programming. That's not to say that men in the general prison population are receiving the programming that they need. And one of the things that I try, one sort of talking point I try to use when I talk to people that either don't seem to care or don't really know a lot about how the prison system works and how it affects us in our daily lives, I point out that it costs $60,000 to incarcerate one person in the New York prison system per year. $60,000. That's more than a year of college education in the state. And so the question is, how are we allocating these resources and so, you know, I'm not a fiscal expert, but I do believe that, for example, if we were going to shut down solitary confinement facilities and reallocate that money, that money should be reallocated towards more productive uses. For example, more programming, um, more rehabilitative therapy, really addressing the underlying causes of people's incarceration to begin with and that sort of thing. Well, thank all of you. I think we'll release you into the general population. Thank you at all of you for having come in and for the people who made comments, and, and we'll see you at the next one. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.